fix that in the edit. Indeed. <laughs> you can include the words, we'll fix that in the edit. A lot, what a lot of podcasts <laughs> seem to do is like a little outtake thing at the start. Yeah, before yeah, they get into the main yeah. thing that might be it just, we'll fix that in the edit <laughs> that might become a running theme I feel We're two students at the University of Southampton. Neither of us study politics, but we decided to start a podcast talking about politics because, you know, more uninformed voices screaming into the void is always useful. Mm. Or at the very least, entertaining. Yes, (laughs) that's exactly what that is. Or at least that's what seems to be, seems to be the, the prevailing opinion at the moment. I see no reason why we should be any different. So, yeah. Why the hell did we decide to start this thing, David? Well, we did notice that our conversations usually went under the influence of something tend to end up sounding like podcasts anyway. So sort of access to record some of them and see if anyone in the world might find that interesting on the off chance. And it is the off chance, I think. <laughs> Definitely the off chance. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the first one we're recording, as will probably be obvious when I put this up with yeah. a number one next to it. <laughs> um, so if this is rambling, incoherent, and just generally not very good, bear with us. Hopefully the next one won't be. <laughs> but, you know, or quite possibly it will. Who knows? Who knows? Baby steps. Y- yes. Well, I think we have to learn to crawl before we learn even yes. to take baby steps. Yes. And this is very much our learning to crawl episode. Yeah. Well, we found the record button, so... It, that was a good start. It did, it did take rather longer than you might imagine for me to work out that the big red circle, Mark Record, would make it record yeah. on a program which... I have used in the past yeah. and still apparently managed to forget. Excellent. Right. So, first talking point. Yes. That makes us Jump sound right in. super professional. Which yeah, we, yeah. Yeah. It's like talk radio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So, what's been going on in the news this week? Well, obviously, it's the election. We'll get to that. Mm. But before, I thought we'd start with a few slightly smaller stories so that we don't get bogged down in mm. election talk too quickly. So, I think one of the most, I say smaller, potentially apocalyptically. (laughs) Smaller issue of the impending apocalypse. I mean, in some ways it is smaller than this election. But um, (laughs) US president and general just awful wreck of a human being, (laughs) maybe, (laughs) primate at least, I think we'll give him. Donald J. Trump has pulled the United States of America out of the Paris Agreement. Source and experiencer of performance. Yes. So, I mean, I don't think anyone was massively surprised. No. He, to be fair, he did say he would do it in the election campaign. Yes. And he has gone ahead and done it. Donald Trump is an interesting uh, case study in sometimes when politicians actually do follow through on their policies, mm. it isn't always a good thing. Rare though it may be, and a nice surprise in some senses. Mm. Uh, yeah, this is... It's, it's pretty terrible. I think... To me, one of the most worrying things about this is the speech that he gave. I don't know if you saw it. He he basically talks a lot about the US being disadvantaged by the agreement and mm. that other countries were going to be able to 
still carry on producing coal power stations mm. and the US wasn't wrapped up in his whole anti-China kind of spiel that he does. I'm sure there was something along the lines of all the specifics that he gave were either completely not true or heavily misleading. <laughs> yes, this was it. It's just, he doesn't appear to have read the text mm. of the agreement or even a summary of it. He did once say something like, um, I didn't really know anything about American healthcare, and then someone explained it to me, and then an hour later I knew everything there was to know. Mm. But it it, it seems to me that no one even got round to explaining this to him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they haven't even given him the one-page summary (laughs) that they normally would. (laughs) It will either be that, or he has consciously decided to lie about it. But I think the the first case is probably the more likely of the two. (laughs) Yeah, what's the old old acting? Never, never, Never attribute to malice what can be adequately explained by... Incompetence. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, so he, he seemed to be under the impression, or at least was trying to give people the impression, one of the two, that, um, the US was being, was being done down and that they were going to have to, you know, abide by all of these rules and that all the other countries, you know, particularly India and China, he was, he was, he was mentioning, were going to be able to carry on using coal power, which mm. just isn't true because the text of the agreement says that each country sets its own targets. It's not like the Kyoto Protocol, which was a binding legal agreement, yes. which the US obviously also <laughs> yeah. never actually got round to joining in on. But um, but this was this was a much looser kind of gentleman's agreement mm. almost, really, to say that each country would set targets that it thought it could reasonably meet. And obviously, developing countries, and countries which are still industrializing, like China and India, are going to be setting less restrictive targets because they kind of have to. There's a long-running theme with the way people talk about the um, the, the emissions that China has, because it does have a lot, but it's also got an enormous population. Mm. In terms of emissions per person, America is far ahead of China. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of like total emissions ever put out, America is definitely the number one. Mm. I mean, I can probably look it up, but um, China is number one in terms of total emissions, but per capita... It's at about a third of, right, yes. or just over a third of what the US is putting out. Mm. Um, Russia is higher than China. Mm. And then India is ridiculously low. 1.45 metric tons of CO2 it? per person. Compared to the Americas, 17.62. And then uh, Trump was also talking about America being forced to pay tens of billions of pounds into, into mm. kind of reducing their CO2 emissions, which is just not true. The actual text of the agreement, the voluntary agreement, I might add, was only about 3 billion. And to be fair, he did say maybe as much as ten billion. Yes, which means three billion in Trump's head. Yeah, well, which yeah, or tens of billion, which is just yeah. a concerning thing to say to me to be talking about though. Possibly as much as you, you are the president of the United States. You really should at least look these things up before you go saying them on international television. That's not even knowing how to count. That's just knowing the difference between three. Ten. Yeah. Well, I say tens of. You know, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Be, I, I, that could be anything up to ninety nine. Yeah, you yeah. know, who knows what what he thinks is is going on? It's a bit concerning. So yeah. So the USA is pulled out of the agreement. Mm. The objective of which was to ensure that the global temperature doesn't rise by more than two degrees. Mm. Two degrees the threshold for proper high level catastrophic yes. warming. Exactly. Below that, it's still a major problem. Yes. And then, of course, he did his Pittsburgh, not Paris thing. And then the mayor of Pittsburgh absolutely (laughs) came out and just completely savaged him. Yes. Pittsburgh voted really quite overwhelmingly against him in the election. 80% for Hillary Clinton in Pittsburgh, which was obviously formerly a mining town. But, you know, and Mm. and the mayor was saying that 
um, you know, uh, with their past in coal, uh, actually moving into renewables was going to be like a real, a real boost for the local mm. economy. And here they were really, you know, going to get a lot out of it. And that, uh, the green jobs, which were going to be created, which is a bit of a nebulous term, but they, you know, were planning on a lot of, um, jobs in renewable energy, which would kind of revitalize the economy. Mm. And green jobs is, is a bit of a nebulous term, but I think it's reasonable to use it because either that is going to be the growth industry mm. in the next few uh, decades and, and, and into the future, or we're in terrible trouble anyway. Uh, so there's an impression that I'm getting from what journalists who speak to people in, in like Appalachian coal mining communities and from seeing actual interviews of them myself, mm. that they tend to completely understand this. They know full well that coal can't carry on forever. They just, they also know that they're going to need jobs to go to mm. when all the coal jobs disappear. So it's, it's not like there's a fundamental problem here of they want to keep the coal, but we can't keep the coal. And so what are we going to do about the fact that they don't understand the, 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 the fundamental problem here? They do understand the fundamental problem. It's just that they don't have anywhere to go. So they need to be provided with a proper solution, which green jobs appears to be a really natural fit for. Mm. Um, uh, and, and then there isn't a, a fundamental confliction between the interests of coal miners and the, the future green economy that okay. we're going to have to move into. I agree, uh, which which was exactly the problem that, w- that we had in this country when we, when Thatcher decimated yeah, our yeah. coal industry, that were, jobs were not mm. provided. If we'd have invested in the mm. uh, the reskilling of the the workers that were coming out of those communities and those mm. jobs, it wouldn't have been a problem. Yeah. There's an extra angle with the uh, British uh, mining industry, which is that because it was one of the more highly unionised, the unions were more aggressive in the way that they would use their uh, the tactics that are that are meant to be at the disposal of unions. Mm. Um, if you want to restructure the economy in a sort of very fundamental way, so that you don't have such strong unions, and you can, have, you want to fundamentally change the relationship between employers and employees in Britain. You need to have some kind of way of directly taking on the bit of the British economy where the the strong unions are concentrated. So in the American case, it's a confliction between the fact that we can't have coal anymore, but the coal miners need somewhere to go. In the British case, we did also need to be transitioning into a less heavy industry kind of economy, but there was an interest in making that happen faster than it economically needed to in order to change the sort of yeah. the power structures of the British economy. Hmm. Whereas America's never had quite as um, strong a labour movement as we have in no, well, well, in the whole of Europe, and certainly not as recently as the eighties. You know, the, yeah, yeah. The, you know, in the thirties, it was a bit of a different situation. But that's I mean, true. Yeah, but I, I, I just pulled out the statistic while we were talking, and in any case, there's only about fifty thousand coal miners. Yeah, still in the United <laughs> in the United States. So it's not um, it's not beyond the wit of man mm. to find new jobs for fifty thousand people. Mm. Yeah. You know, if it was 10% of the labour market, we might have an issue. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, this is something which is easily doable yeah. if some actual thought and some funds went into doing it. Hmm. But of course, you know, Republican government, it probably won't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though they are exactly the people who the Republicans say that they, uh, they represent. Hmm. But, uh, uh, going back to the nature of climate change itself, the state of play is that if we are to avoid two degrees warming, we need to never dig up or pump up or 
whatever, the between 60 and 80% of all currently known fossil fuel reserves. Mm. They have to stay in the ground forever. We can't burn them. Yeah. Um, but all the oil and coal companies share prices are valued as if they are one day going to make use of those resources that they own. Right. So either we're going to hit catastrophic warning at warming or at some point some of the biggest corporations on earth are going to lose 60% of their value. What a shame. Yeah. Can you can you hear the sad song yeah, yeah. being played on the world's smallest violin there in the distance? <laughs> I mean, there is a sad song being played because, of course, those corporations are not going to allow that to happen. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it, yeah. yeah. But this is a fundamental issue that it's not the coal miners which have a, a no a material conflicting interest no, with it is as always what needs to happen. the people that it's own the corporation. The, yes, who happen to be the most powerful people on earth. Yeah, so. <laughs> and you know, also happen to advise Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, mm. <laughs> Right, so mo- moving on our lengthy discussion of impending apocalypse. I don't, sad. Ag- sad, bigly. But um, Saudi Arabia and a number of the other Gulf monarchies. Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Yemen, Libya's eastern government of the 17 it has. It's actually three, right. but 17. <laughs> 17 sounds funny. And the Maldives, because the Maldives are always getting in on some diplomatic action. Really have 17 has Trump numbers there. Yeah, exactly. They have all cut ties with Qatar. Uh, basically, right. there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, there was a speech which, um, the Emir, I believe, of Qatar gave a few days ago in which he seemed <laughs> mentioned a friendly relationship with Israel, praised Iran as a force of stability in the region, and also praised Hamas. None of which wow. Saudi Arabia are massively keen on. They also have in the past, there was a similar incident uh, a couple of years ago. Saudi Arabia cut diplomatic relations with Qatar over support for the Muslim Brotherhood during the Arab Spring. Right. Um, okay. So there's that that's been bubbling away in the background as well. And basically the argument that Saudi Arabia and these other countries, but principally Saudi Arabia, have made is that Qatar is supporting terrorism uh, by, you know, backing the Muslim Brotherhood, who they call terrorists, and also... Hamas. Saudi Arabia isn't backing terrorism. No, well, the, I mean, this is, this is, this is the hypocrisy of it. Yeah. I mean, Qatar do back terrorism and, you know, they were massively yeah, yeah. influential in the original genesis of uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq, which became, uh, Daesh or Islamic State. Um, but then so was Saudi Arabia. So the, it's, it's a very bizarre sort of almost Orwellian, incredibly oh. hypocritical. There's a lot of things that are sort of intersecting here. Which mm. is that, so Qatar have praised both Iran and Israel. Yes. So the thing that they have in common is that Saudi Arabia doesn't like either of them. Pretty much. But they don't like each other. <laughs> oh no, 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 they're not, they're not keen. Definitely. Um, but of, but of course Qatar is a peninsula which sticks out the, no- the north of, right. um, of the main Arabian peninsula and Saudi Arabia has cut off access basically. Right. Um, and then Bahrain which is also nearby has cut off access. So all of these countries have basically stopped air and sea transport as well as um, cutting off diplomatic relations. And yeah, Saudi Arabia have essentially cut them off. So Mm. it's now a lot more difficult for Qataris to get in and out of their country. They have to take much longer flights um, and they can't stop off in the most usual transit hubs. So this is, yeah, I mean, it's potentially quite Problematic. As I said, it happened before a few years ago, 
but yeah, it seems to have flared up again. It's not the, necessarily the biggest thing going on in, <laughs> in the Middle East at the moment, mm. but it, it is a concerning development. It's also problematic, uh, particularly for the USA because obviously Qatar and Saudi Arabia are both major allies and they're with major oil investments in the area. And when you've got someone as, to get back to him, but when you've got someone as um, volatile as Donald Trump in position, and I've just seen an article Ooh, which yeah. has been posted 11 minutes ago saying that Donald Trump has sided with Saudi Arabia in this diplomatic right. conflict. Quote, During my recent trip to the Middle East, I stated that there can be no longer be funding of radical ideology, capitalised. Leaders pointed to Qatar. Look! Exclamation mark. The US president tweeted on Tuesday. Uh, he hasn't quite put bigly at the end, but he might as well have. That I mean, that's I mean, that's just terrifying. I mean, Blimey. And of course, the the Qatari government is denying all these accusations as well. It might the idea that they're actually aiding and abetting Iran, which is one of the accusations which have been leveled at them, is mm. probably for the birds. I would think, um, given that they certainly, you know, the Emir certainly was complementary or more complementary than most um, sort of Gulf leaders towards them. But I mean, the idea that they're Conspiring against the Saudis, I think, is is, mm. is probably nonsense. But I mean, there, there definitely are. Here you go. There, a statement carried on SPA, the Saudi state news agency, accused Doha of harboring terrorists and sectarian groups that aim to destabilize the region, including the Muslim Brotherhood, ISIS, and Al Qaeda. That is, as well as alleged Iranian-backed Shia militia activity in eastern Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. Well, that is unfortunately undeniable. But Saudi Arabia are just as bad. Mm. Um, apart from obviously the, the, the Shia military activity, which again, I, I'm not sure if that part is true of Qatar either. Um, certainly true of Iran, mm. but I mean, it, yeah. But anyway, so a volatile Middle East gets even more volatile and the current world summitary stage is occupied by Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, Theresa May with a Boris Johnson in hand. I mean, someone give Angela Merkel a medal. Bless her. <laughs> She's the only person keeping the world with one piece at the moment. And the other Angela Merkel, uh, Macron. Yes. Well, I mean, he's he's, but he's not had the experience yet. Has yeah, he? yeah. But I mean, no, she really has. Eleven years. Yeah, eleven years. I mean, you know, this is not a. This is not an endorsement for Angela Merkel. No, no. Uh, we're, not, we're not coming out as uh, members of the Christian yeah. right, but. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, compared to the rest of them. Yeah, the last five years have very, very much lowered my standards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, would, I think I would... It was... Um, I was having a conversation with a mutual friend of ours, Jamie right. Hannah, yeah. uh, who is a politics student, so he does sort of know what he's talking about, before the US election, saying there was a concert between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and we, we were saying, bring back Mitt Romney. I mean, seriously, you know, he had some good ideas on healthcare, you know, he's relatively moderate, you know, he's, you know, fairly unlikely to start bombing every country east of Mexico or building walls. I mean, he would only build a fence, not a wall. Yes. Well, there's really a fence. It's just the yeah, fence yeah. only covers a third of the border, which, to be fair, is dark. I mean, if you've got to build a border fence. I mean, <laughs> wanted to extend the fence. You could walk round the fence. Um, <laughs> is there yeah. any news on that wall, by the way? Because it seems to have gone very quiet. Oh, well, well, we could look it up. Why not? It's it's not on, it's not on the agenda, yeah. but we can we can look it up. Right. Um, I last I heard, it basically was frustrated because the Democrats refused to allow it in the budget. Right. Yeah. Um, According to the Guardian, Mexico are obviously telling him to, where to go. 
by the looks of things, it's kind of ground to a halt. Right. Okay. Yeah, Trump backs but down because he can't get it through. Congress. Yeah, Trump right. backs down on border wall funding. I think it was it was it was basically a pro quo in for in order for him to pass his um, cuts in other areas. Right. Okay. Was that he dropped the wall from this particular budget? But I mean, I thought Mexico was going to pay for it. I I don't <laughs> think they're keen. I don't no, think funny, they're I keen. Have that. No, they'd be happy to pay for it. Well, I mean, to be honest, with Donald Trump in charge, I'm <laughs> yeah, probably true. getting to the point fairly soon where they might they might change wall. their minds. <laughs> yeah, we'll pay for it, but we're having the lock on our yeah, side. Yeah. Right, so that's I think that's Qatar yes. out of the way for now. You know, unless that <laughs> blows up quite literally in the next week or so, but um. Uh, should we, should we do it? Should we take the plunge? Yeah, let's do it. Shall we, should we delve into the depths, which is the 2017 United Kingdom general election? In two days time. In, well, two days time as recording. Yes. By the time this is up, it's gonna be it probably tomorrow. Yeah. For you people. You lovely people, all three of you listening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, two, swing the election. two of those are us. The first point that I have noted down is, the following. Why this whole bloody election is pointless anyway, because the EU don't give a damn what Theresa May's majority is. Mm. I always thought that was bizarre when she brought it up. It, it, she wants to have a stronger negotiating position because the party that the Prime Minister belongs to has a bigger majority in the Parliament of the country that they're the Prime Minister of. That, yes. makes you, that gives you a stronger negotiating position. This it? is apparently her argument. This is the entire reason she called the election in the first place, lest we forget. And it doesn't make any sense. Hmm. It's it's just a it's just it's just nonsense. Hmm. The, the the European Union couldn't care less what hmm. Theresa May's majority is when she was a member, or when Britain was a a a member and continuing to be a member. Obviously, we still are a member at the moment. But yeah. you know, when you are a stable member of the European Union, then the political situation within the country is relevant. But as soon as you say you're leaving, you know, the only thing that would matter if the prime minister actually changed, which. The only way that was going to happen is if yeah, she called yeah, a snap yeah, election. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know she thought she'd be ahead 30 points, but, I mean, even mm. so, it just... An increased majority would mean nothing. Yes. Absolutely nothing in terms of negotiations with the European Union. All it is, is... And, you know, this is going back a bit now, but I haven't had a chance to shout about it in public yet. But no. um, Go on. Public shouting, that's what we need. Yes. Here we go. So, <laughs> this is what Theresa May said when she called the election in the first place. At this moment of enormous national significance, there should be unity here in Westminster, but instead there is division. The country is coming together, but Westminster is not. Well, that's dubious, but anyway. Mm. In recent weeks, Labour has threatened to vote against the final agreement we reach with the European Union. The Liberal Democrats have said they want to grind the business of government to a standstill. The Scottish National Party say they will vote against the legislation that formally repeals Britain's membership of the European Union. I mean, this is basically saying, I don't want democratic opposition yes. to my government's policies. Her entire argument here, it's, I mean, it's the most authoritarian, dangerous, quasi-fascist nonsense I have ever seen from a, 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 a conservative leader. And that says something. Yes, the first line is, Labour has threatened to vote against the final agreement we reached with the European Union. Well, good. That's the Labour's going to vote against government policy sometimes. The opposition's going to oppose... It's the purpose the of the opposition. Yes. I mean, what Theresa May is essentially saying here is, 
Everyone should turn out and vote for the Tories so that there will be no effective opposition, so that they can railroad through anything they like and turn the entire country into a one-party state. Mm. That is the actual reason <coughs> contained here in this speech for calling the election. Remember, Labour voted to trigger Article 50. Mm. And there is no clear legal route once you've triggered Article 50, uh, 50 to not leave the European Union. It's in the treaties that you trigger Article 50 and that begins your process of leaving the, uni- the European Union. Yes. There's not any path to stop the process once you've triggered Article 50. So no. Labour have voted to trigger Article 50 in the knowledge that that means we're leaving the European Union. Which is already a massive concession, which a lot of people yes. didn't want them to make. Myself included, you know, in an ideal world. But, you know, I understand why yes. they did. I, I take the view that once we've voted to leave, we do have to leave, ultimately. <clears throat> if just to preserve the very idea of referendums, you can't... Yes, but I, I mean, I, I don't think... I, I think you could... You could um... You could justify having a second referendum if the if the if if there was a, a slide in the polls that were clearly showing people would rent the decision, which I admit there hasn't been, but I, I think that um, in that circumstance it would have been legitimate to have a, a second referendum. Right? Okay, and I, I think uh, I think Labour could have done more to advocate for that position, but um, you know that's by the by, that's done anyway. I mean, I just wanted to bring up that the entire reason that this election has been ostensibly called is nonsense. Mm. And what Theresa May actually wants to do, wanted to do when she thought she was going to be mm. 20 points ahead, is to turn the United mm. Kingdom into a one-party yes. state. So essentially, it was settled, basically, amongst the two main parties, that we were leaving the European Union. But she specifically th- said, and said it openly, that given that, I don't want any oversight in that process mm. from Parliament. I no. want to be able to ignore Parliament. Which is just... And so called an election to try and bring that about. That's a bizarre thing for a leader of a democratic country to say, for a start. And I'm I'm not surprised that she's done a lot worse in this election than she thought she would, because uh, because people don't take to that sort of thing. People no. aren't naturally... People don't naturally want to be ignored. <laughs> no. I mean, it frustrates me that her opinion ratings haven't come down more, to be honest, because hmm. I think, really, they should have. But, um, yeah, I mean, it does, certainly doesn't surprise me they've come down yeah, as far as they have. There seems to be hmm. a, um, a theme in some uh, people who are former Home Secretaries of having a sort of domestic anti-civil liberties strain in their thinking. I think that's definitely definitely true. I mean, there's a sort of the running joker among even the other departments that civil servants in the Home Office go a bit native and become kind of authoritarian eyes, if you like. Mm. You know, radicalised is possibly too strong a term, but yeah. I, I've used it now. So, yeah. <laughs> And I think I think that definitely appeared to... I mean, she was the longest serving Home Secretary, I think, in well over 100 years. Oh, really? Yeah, that's that. six years, which is... I mean, a lo- Home Secretary traditionally is one of those jobs which you don't serving very long because there's usually a massive crisis that yeah. gets you booted out. But yeah, I mean, she was there a long time. So I definitely think there's something to what you say that, mm. that she she herself has gotten native. I mean, from the, from the woman who, who, who gave the keynote speech which described the Tories as the nasty party, to be, to be acting in this way now mm. is just... It does seem to be something that's changed in, in, in her psychology, the way she thinks. You know, mm. I don't want to play... 
an armchair psychologist too much, but I yeah. mean, it is, he is bizarre in that sense. Um, she was supposed to be one of the big modernizers, but I think she's going, she's dragging, dragging the party well backwards. Mm. Well backwards. There's a bit of me which sort of likes that because she's a conservative rather than a sort of camera knight, doesn't believe in anything apart from just, uh, sort of she, she actually believes in conservatism, I think. Yes. I mean, there is something to, 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 to that. Um, I think definitely as well, because you've got the, uh, the movement, obviously the Labour Party to the left under Jeremy Corbyn, the corresponding movement to the right of the Conservatives is sort of inevitable and also probably a good thing for, in terms of democracy. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. having two, you know, you know, un- under, under Blair, when Labour were just sort of particularly, particularly in that brief period between 2005 and 2007, where Blair and Cameron were the two leaders. Yes. I mean, there's no difference between them. They are the same person. <laughs> they speak the same. They have the same policies. They have the same mannerisms, even. Yeah. You know, it's just scarily. It's like you you rent a kit politician that you've built in your back garden, mm. and then sent off to to give some speeches. Mm. So yeah, I definitely, I definitely. Um, Cameron's final line in Parliament was a play on Blair's, wasn't it? Or maybe Blair's first one. What was it? As Cameron said, um, "Once I was the future." And that's right. a, that, I, I seem to remember that that's an echo of something Blair said. Right. When he started Parliament, you'll have said something along the lines of, now we're the future, or something. Right. And as Cameron left, he said, once I was the future. Yeah. It's a deliberate reference to the fact that he's basically Tony Blair. <laughs> yeah. One well, I mean, he called himself the heir to Blair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, as, as Blair called himself the heir to Thatcher. But anyway, yeah, so yeah, I think, I think definitely for, in terms of de- the, it's a healthier democracy when you have two, Major parties who actually disagree on important issues. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't make me <coughs> less terrified of the authoritarian tendencies, which Theresa May. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> really, really quite worrying. So, um, yeah. So this is an article um, uh, by Stephen Bush in the New Statesman uh, a few days ago, the twenty fifth of May, and he's essentially asking the question to which the answer he draws is kind of yes. Are the Conservatives trying to change the rules of politics so that they never lose again? Um, so there are a few different components to this. The first is the introduction of a voter ID law, which is in the Conservative manifesto. I was surprised by that because that's a um, that's something I much more associate with America. Oh yes, and I would have thought that people outside of America wouldn't really fall for it because it is actually quite an obvious. Yeah, attempt to suppress the vote. I mean, in America, it is particularly bad because it um, basically for the, you know for those who who aren't aware, and most people listen to this probably are. But at, the, at, at current, you don't need uh, to take a piece of identification with you to vote. You just need to um, uh, to to have your name and your address. You don't need photo ID in America. In a lot of districts and states, uh, they have voter identification laws, um, or at least they're trying in place, certain places. Some places they have them, some places they're trying to bring them in, uh, which would mandate you that you had to have photographic ID to enable you to vote. The idea being that it's suppressing a voter fraud, but, I mean, Stephen Bush cites that there were 481 allegations of electoral fraud in the last election, which is tiny. When there were, what, tens of millions of votes? Yes. The majority of those 481 were on the side of the parties, so nothing to do with voters at all. Mm. Uh, only a quarter related 
to actual voters um, committing offences. Irregularities. And, yes, and most of those were about postal vote or about treating, which is the practice of giving people food and drink to influence their vote. Neither of which would be solved by voter ID. Mm. Basically, what voter ID does is it means that people who are who move around a lot, who change their address frequently, or people who are on lower incomes, are much less likely to have forms of voter ID which would be acceptable, and therefore it makes them harder to get access to the vote. Which in America, obviously, is um, particularly correlated along racial lines. You know, mm. big problems with this um, restricting access of black and Hispanic populations mm. to the vote. To the point where some state legislatures have struck these laws down as unconstitutional. Yes, yeah. There's a there's an angle in America as well, which is that they have much lower rates of people having passports. Mm. So if you have photo ID, it will be for something specific. So if you're ex-military or if it's a driver's license or something like yes. that. Yes. And those are nowhere near universal. Huge numbers no. of people don't, have, don't happen to have some other kind of ID that also requires them yeah. to have photo ID. Hmm. Um, there's no particular reason why someone should have photo ID. Yeah. If you don't drive, why would you? I mean, as, as you say, um, it's a particular problem with passports in America and in this country a lot. You know, a greater percentage of people have passports. But it, that's still a discrepancy, though. Yeah. Quite a few people don't have passports. E- exactly. And, and they are fairly expensive. Yeah, they're, I mean, it's about 70 quid yeah. to, to, to get a, a, a new one. £72.50 to renew or replace an adult passport. Which is mm. not an insignificant amount, mm. um, and right. also imagine if, in order to be, in, in order to register to vote, you had to pay seventy pounds. Yeah, but that's essentially what they're saying. Yeah, you know that that's essentially what this is. I mean, you you could you could get a provisional driver's license instead, which is a bit cheaper. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, it's it's still you shouldn't have to pay money in order to vote, particularly when there is just basically you know to within a rounding error, no fraud going on anyway. Yeah, yeah. So with, what, what's the point? It's not actually. Without photo ID, if you have to give your name and address, you could only be impersonated by someone who knows who you are and where you live. Yeah. And if you then try to vote, they'll say, you've already voted. Yeah. And then you'll say, no, I haven't. And then it will be clear that someone's impersonated. Yeah. So, and of course, the, the groups that are the most likely not to have photo ID are also groups that are very likely to vote against the Conservatives. Because yes. people on low incomes or people who tend to move around a lot, tend to be younger, tend to be students, tend to be ethnic minorities. Mm tend not to vote the Tories because the Tories consistently screw those groups over yeah. again and again and again and again. So that's one of the points that he makes. Another one is talking about boundary changes. Um, the, the problem here is because boundary changes aren't based on populations. So when they adjust the boundaries of constituencies, which happens every 10 years, um, or at least there's a report every 10 years, mm. um, this is based on the number of people on the electoral roll, not the number of people that actually live in the constituency. Mm. And often people aren't on the electoral register. And again, this tends to be younger people. It tends to be people that move around because you have to be registered with each address. Mm. Um, it tends to be people on lower incomes. Yeah. So the areas, parts of the population that tend not to be registered to vote just get fewer MPs mm. for them. So that will be inner city areas, for example. Yeah. Definitely. And this is um, something which the Conservatives believe is going to give them a big advantage, whether that actually happens or not. Because at least in this country, um, boundaries are adjusted by an independent commission, not as in America, where they're gerrymandered by political parties. So we do have a better system in that sense. But 
where, yeah, where people aren't on the electoral register is a real problem. Mm. Uh, what were the other ones? Oh, yes, they also wanted to extend the rights of British voters to live overseas, which is not necessarily a problem in and of itself, but this is something which is possibly likely to massively benefit the Conservatives, or again, at least that's what they they think, which is why it's in the manifesto. Mm. Um, because a lot of people who live abroad, British people who live abroad, tend to be retirees in places like Spain and, and, uh, and whatever. Which is going to be, you know, affected by Brexit anyway. But um, but it'll be it'll be people who've, and for a start, it tends to be elderly people. Yeah, and it tends to be people who, by the time that they um, become elderly, have got enough sort of put away to be able to retire to a, a foreign country. Yeah, exactly. So they'll be the wealthier end of elderly people. Yes, yes. Obviously, there'll be young people working abroad as well. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and military people as well. And, and military, of course. Uh, I think the military are different anyway. Cause oh, I, think, force, okay. I believe forces people um, are coming by separate situations. They, oh, they, okay. they, right. they, they can already vote, basically. Um, they have uh, special systems set up so mm. they can get postal votes back from military bases. There's a, there's a side point that there's an absurdity with the way that the American system is set up, which is that if you live outside of the US then you can still vote presidential elections yes but not if you live in an, a, a, a US overseas territory yes. that isn't in a particular state so if you live in Puerto Rico you can't or, vote or somewhere like that you can't vote yeah which is again if you live in the US but not in any particular state you can't vote but if you live in Australia you can vote in the state in which you were last a resident yeah, yeah. which is oh yeah there's the thing about how um, technically astronauts can still vote as well mm. so Actually, if you're anywhere in the whole universe, yeah. you can still vote, Except with the exception of Puerto Rico and a few other sort of islands American, places like American, it. So, uh, Guam. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Guam. Guam, Guam is yeah. another one, yeah. Um, and then, I believe... Oh, yes, and then they're also talking about scrapping uh, the slightly more proportional voting systems which are used for some elections. So, uh, at the moment, we use a supplementary vote, which is, or SV, for electing mayors and police and crime commissioners, which is a system whereby you rank not all candidates as under AV, but you get to pick a first and second choice. Mm. And then also the additional member system, which is a kind of top-up system, um, which, again, is more proportional than first-past-the-post, uh, which we use for the London Assembly. Um, and they're talking about scrapping both of those. Which... This this is interesting because it's not necessarily massively beneficial for the Conservatives. What it will do is it will disadvantage the smaller parties. So this is actually it will benefit the Conservatives, but it also benefit Labour. Yeah, because it, it first past the post favours the two party system. Mm-hmm. So the Tories are kind of I, th- I suppose gambling that Labour will lose more, uh, will get will gain less rather, but. I mean, what it definitely does is it mm. makes it harder for small parties like the Greens, even the Lib Dems in, in, in terms of London at the moment, with the vote share as low as it is, and of course UKIP, which is obviously a thorn in the to- Tories' side, mm. from gaining many seats or mayoral positions. The received wisdom appears to be that Labour tend to find it easier to do deals with smaller parties than the Conservatives do. Mm. So a two-party system advantages them less because they could operate better in a multi-party system. Yeah, which is certainly true because obviously, I mean, the SNP and the, the present political climate are going to be the third party yeah, yeah. pretty much indefinitely and they will not work with the Tories. 
But 2015, that wouldn't have worked because the Conservatives and UKIP together would have had a majority. Yes. But I I did the maths once, and that is the first time that would have been true since, like, the early 30s, though. Mm. Um, Labour plus Liberal plus small left of centre parties uh, had a majority between them in every election since the 30s, apart from 2015, because of UKIP. Yes. In terms of uh, votes. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Although that is including Sinn Féin. Who don't take their who don't take their seats? No, of course. Um, so not taking your seats means mathematically it's the same as yeah. as you go into coalition with sort of both parties. You just split your MPs, so you, yeah. you don't have yeah. any effects. So I'm not sure it might have. Uh, yeah, I haven't done the maths on that, so that, that yeah. might not be true if you take that into account. But in any case, it's as you say, it's 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 a system. First past the post is just bad. You know, it's just it's just. Anachronistic. <laughs> yeah. It's just, oh, yeah, it's just an awful system. You should have got rid of a long time ago. You didn't actually have it, um, until relatively recently. It's only about, I can't remember when it was, but it's, it's sooner than you'd think. Only like a century ago. Well, something. because we used to have multiple member constituencies. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the university constituencies for Oxford and Cambridge and places like that. I mean, oh, the, right. the, yeah, the, 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 the British Parliament used to be a very bizarre, bizarre. <laughs> institution because it evolved out of the, the Witan, which is a, Kind of an Anglo-Saxon, yeah. Germanic kind of tribal council, which mm. goes back thousands of years, and we, it was never founded, so it was never designed exactly. <laughs> so it just kind of got bits added to it. So you had the bishops added when they're Christianized, and then the knights got put in when knightly orders arose in under feudalism, and <laughs> yeah, the Parliament is a mess basically because it's just nonsensical. It should be rebuilt from the ground up, like most institutions in the United Kingdom. Year zero, ladies and gentlemen. Year zero. I quite like the fact that there's one country which doesn't make sense in the world, in the way that we do, and yet still works so comparatively well. Yes, comparatively. And then you you have countries like the United States, which are were designed fairly recently and still managed to go catastrophically wrong at regular intervals. So, you know, yeah, maybe maybe there's something to be said for... uh, I wonder if it's got something to do with the fact that because... Our system doesn't make any sense. And therefore, everyone knows that it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So everyone has, everyone knows that everyone has to rely on people just sort of being quite sensible. And muddling through. And muddling through. Also, and, that, and that's, yeah. in the end, a more robust basis to build a stable system yeah. on. It's, it's people not wanting to rock the boat too much. I mean, I, I, I like to think in terms of system solutions, but I mean, yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's probably something. I know what you mean. I, there is I probably something in that. I agree with you. There is probably something in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, right, I think that, yeah, so that, that concludes our, our, our massive tangent on the subject of the Tories trying to yeah, crush democracy in the United Kingdom. But there are certainly some worrying trends, I think, uh, of, of reform to the electoral system not in the correct direction. Mm. The correct direction, of course, being proportional representation. Yes, that would make just more sense. <laughs> yes, but the, the Tories seem to be going for less proportional <laughs> because they are self-interested. Mm. And or completely mad. One of the two. Um, Probably a bit of both. A little, a little of both. <coughs> uh, so yes. Yeah, so going back, the next, the next point on on our on our list is why everyone should vote for glorious leader Jezza. Oh right. <laughs> um, so so I don't know if you'd like to lay out your reasons why you will presumably be voting for uh, Supreme um, Overlord I, Chairman. I, I'm leaning that way. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, oh, it's just quite good, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, he is. He is just so much better than the rest of the riffraff. I mean, yeah. 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 Well, there's, I tend to find that 
speaking to people their views on various issues tend not to be that different from each other, even if they sort of feel like they have very different politics. Hmm. The thing that tends to divide them is which issues they think are the more important issues. Yes. And for me, I think there are three that they're the things that will really swing who I support. And the others are sort of things that it's kind of, it's important to talk about, but they don't uh, swing who's going to get my support. Right. Climate change. Because that's, I mean, it's quite important. It's the continued survival of our, our civilization. Yes. I, don't, I yes. don't want food prices to triple and then never come down again in my mid-40s. Income and wealth inequality, because that is more... It, that's really the fundamental root of all of the problems in... Um, having a highly unequal society makes the society less democratic mm. and less prosperous and um, less cohesive. It's harder to... Yeah. Theresa May often talks about the national interest, but it's very difficult to have a single national interest if different parts of your society are in such radically different positions economically. So it's very difficult to have uh, to, to govern a, a society when so many different parts of it are in so many different places. Yeah. Um, it, it causes trouble for your economy as well, um, because if it's, if it's not structured as... You, you can't have a proper market economy in the sort of... Um, the sort of uh, anything like the ideal sense that people who believe in market economies think they should be if large sections of the population don't have very much economic clout. If there's a small number of people who control huge sections of the economy because it's their private property and a lot of other people who don't, you can't have a proper competitive system. Um, and have I said that it erodes democracy as well? You have, yeah. Oh, right, yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> worth repeating. Yeah. And also, I, um, I think economic inequality you know, demonstrably is the root of pretty much all other inequalities. So yes, yeah. raci- racial gender inequality yeah, yeah. Is, is all predicated on income. If you equalise income, then you tend to find that social attitudes will follow fairly swiftly afterwards. Yeah. And there's the, the really important part of it is that there's a debate to be had around, like you, uh, some people might say, well, you need a certain amount of equality for various reasons or whatever. Okay, but... At the moment, we have very high levels of inequality, and they're growing, and they're growing quite fast. So that really, very definitely can't carry on for that much longer before we start to hit some serious problems. It's 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 like the climate change thing. It's also unsustainable. Things can't carry on as they are. They just can't. It's either going to get a lot worse, or we're going to change direction. And the third one is um, public services more generally, but specifically the NHS. Yeah, of course. It's in. It's in. It's in funding crisis and has sort of internal fragmentation and uh, the 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 principle that in this country healthcare is something which doesn't have an economic angle when it comes to the individual who's using it is steadily starting to slip away and it's a really important principle that people have a right to be looked after when it comes to their physical health and mental health as well of course, I, I I I couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah. I've been you know reading about with um, the the attempted push through of the ACHA, the American uh, AHA rather, the American Healthcare Act that Trump is trying to push through in America, which has reignited the healthcare debate over there. Uh, and of course, the the things that come up are insurance prices and how they vary state to state, and you know costing thousands and thousands of pounds to get, and it's just, it's just, dollars rather, and it's it's such an alien way of life. 
I mean, I really mean that. I mean, mm. it's what I think is one of the biggest cultural differences between the United States and the United Kingdom. And there are a lot of big ones, and we don't give them an, enough time, I think, just because mm. we happen to speak the same language. But one of the biggest is the way, the, just the view of, of healthcare and the fact that in America, you, you don't have a right to healthcare. You don't really have a right to life if yeah. you don't have a right to healthcare. You know, they're basically saying, if you can't afford to pay, yeah, we'll, we'll patch you up in a real emergency. But if you have a, like a condition that's going to kill you slowly, like cancer, for example, yeah, yeah. you're on your own. Yeah. And that is, is just morally indefensible. I don't mm. think I, I, you know, America is the worst, but I mean, there are other countries which are certainly no, not great. I mean, even Germany is, has a, has a hybrid system, which is non ideal. Um, and I think the NHS is one of, if not the best thing about the United Kingdom mm. and about living in Britain. And, I, you know, yeah, we have to defend it to the hill. Yeah. But it, the, the idea of an NHS, which is that everyone's healthcare is... Some people pay for private anyway on top of it. But the idea that everyone has the right to have healthcare that is paid for out of the general taxation that everyone else pays for mm. undermines the idea that you're supposed to only care about yourself. Yes. And it... it it's really important to not slip into that attitude because that stops societies from functioning properly. The idea that you're supposed to care about whether the pensioner down the street who you you don't really speak to but you but you sort of wave to them on the uh, passing in the street, you're supposed to care about whether they can get healthcare or not, mm. not out of sort of strict self-interest. Yeah. That's an important principle. Um, there's also a pragmatic point, which is that in take it America. If you have a pre-existing condition or something like that, some long-running condition that's going to have repeat bills um, uh, over uh, decades or the rest of your life, it's much easier to get healthcare if you get it through your work. Yes. If you work for a large yeah. corporation. Yeah. So it discourages people from starting businesses. So if you take the view that you're supposed to have a dynamic market economy where there's innovation and whatever, you have to give people free healthcare, don't you? <laughs> Entrepreneurialism, yeah. yeah, yeah. That was the um, the motto of the Swedish Social Democratic Party was secure people dare. The idea being that if you have a strong welfare state that mm. people know they can rely on, they feel safe enough to take risks. Yes, and then you end up with a, a, a more a sort of uh, more vitality in your market economy. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. I mean, for my part, I mean, you know, you've, you've, you've summed it up beautifully. There's not really a lot more I can add. I mean, the only thing that I would say is that the Labour Manifesto is not the most radical document I've ever laid eyes on. It is almost too, you know, I I wish it was more radical, but Mm. (laughs) in, in many, many ways, but it is by far the best vision, I think, for the future of, of, of this country and the society that, that, you know, any of the major parties have put out in decades. Mm. And, you know, it, the fact that, that, that the party is now willing to talk about renationalization of rail, something which would have been unthinkable a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, which is just such an, such a no brainer because it's a natural monopoly. You, you, you yeah. can't, you can't even have a functioning <coughs> market economy when you have a natural monopoly. It's the same is true of water and energy and all of these kinds of things, of course. Mm. Um, and those things have been extremely popular with the public for ages. For you, it's just neither of the main parties yes, would even, acknowledge it. I believe even, um, yes. So here we go. 19th of May 2017. 13 different industries. So the police, 87% yes, 10% don't know, and then 
I mean, it's not even going to be a number. Even say, yes. Yeah, but I mean, I we can work that out with the math. Math three percent. Yes. Um, NHS eighty four percent to five to ten. Armed forces eighty three percent to fourteen to. Uh, that's three again. Isn't it? I'm surprised that fourteen percent of people say they don't know whether the armed forces should be private. That is slightly concerning, even in and of itself. But I mean. Schools, 81%. Royal Mail, 65%. Railway, 60%. Water, 59%. BBC, 58%. Energy companies, 53%. Bus companies, 50%. The, uh, banks weren't. So the only three that they said that the majority of people didn't want to be nationalised are telephone and internet, banks and airlines. That's it. Mm. Every other of these major industries on this list, the majority of the population <coughs> backs their nationalisation. Going back slightly to the healthcare thing, the um, in America there's there's quite significant polling to say that they support having a universal healthcare yeah, system. Yeah, yeah, well. no, yeah, it's very very true, very true. I think I saw something once that was about a majority of Americans believe that from each according to his ability to each according to his need, they they believe that it is in the Constitution. It should be. Yeah, <laughs> but a lot of people sort of don't really know what's in the Constitution. No, okay. no. If they say it's in the Constitution, that means it's just an obvious principle. Yeah, I mean, so, it, 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 you know, the Constitution is essentially the American religion. You know, Christianity yeah. aside. There was another poll which said that a majority of Tea Party activists said that they would be in favour of a political revolution to redistribute wealth from the one percent to the poor and the middle class. The Tea Party. The Tea Party. They do, they do know they're the hard right libertarian, yep. don't they? Um, I don't think they've read their own books. Yeah, I remember that Ian Atlas shrugged. Yeah. <laughs> Where's that bit? I don't. It doesn't appear to be in here, guys. You have been reading. May I interest you in Das Kapital? <laughs> That's what we need. Um, yeah. Oh dear. But yes. Um, yeah, the the thing about how um, the Labour Manifesto really isn't that radical. It's just standard social democratic it's stuff. A, it's it, in many places just common sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, it really is. I mean, I've said this before and I say it again, and that, you know, if anyone is listening to this when it goes out tomorrow, the day before the election, and they haven't flicked through the Labour Manifesto, please do yourselves a favour. Just give it a quick scan. You know, you, mm. you know, I, I read the whole thing and it took me, I think, about forty minutes. Yeah. It's something that struck me about how a line that the Conservatives have started using is the magic money tree. Oh, for goodness sake, yes. And they haven't costed their manifesto, yeah, yeah. whereas Labour's is fully <clears throat> costed. But I think what this comes from is, is it's the thing about over the last few decades, our standards have really been lowered again, mm. which is that this isn't anywhere near anything that you'd call a radical manifesto. No. But it looks weird in the context of what we've become used to. Because we've been suffering yes. under such a hard right, neoliberal... Yeah. We've forgotten what a manifesto that we actually quite like yeah. the look of looks like. Yeah. And so when we finally see one, yeah. the best argument that the Conservatives can come up with is, well, it looks good, therefore it can't be true. <laughs> this this would have been the Tory manifesto in the 50s. Yeah, definitely. This, this, would, have, this would have been a right-wing mm. manifesto in the 50s. Yeah. With the exception you know, of the LGBT stuff. Yes, with of course. Yeah. But in terms of the economics, yeah, yeah. in terms of the economics, this would have been to the, to the right of the of the mainstream in the fifties. I don't I don't say that as a criticism of Jeremy Corbyn because I'm sure he'd like to go further, but he's not able to. But, yeah, that's but it shows what it would that you need been. someone like Jeremy Corbyn who's yeah. always sort of been slightly outside of that that, mm. that political clique that everyone does, doesn't like. Yeah, 
in order to just put forward sensible policies again. Because, you know, um, which kind of leads us into the next bit, which is talking about the narrowing of the polls, um, which has really been the big story of this election campaign, other than Theresa May's um, uh, whole dementia tax debacle. Oh, yeah. That's probably been gone into enough. Um, So, just bring up the old uh, BritainElects.com graph because it's the nicest looking one, not because it's necessarily any different to anyone else's. Um, But they do have some rather spectacular graphs. Looking (coughs) at the Britain elects model, and here we go, it's the first time it says, I'm a professional podcaster now, I'll put a link in the show notes. Oh. Yeah. If I, that feels like an event. If I work, a moment. If I work out how to do that, yeah. which, you know, it's, it's a maybe. But anyway, but, I mean, you can find it very very easily anyway. But it's, you know, the amount to which the polls have narrowed. What, what day did Theresa May announce the election? Theresa May announced the general election on Tuesday the 18th of April, and at at that point, Britain elects, say, I think it's a seven-point moving average of the polls, was showing the Conservatives on 42.3% and Labour on 26.2%. So that's what? That's, that's incredible. That's um, six, 16.1% lead. Is that, am I got my maths right, David? You're the physicist that has maths in it. I'm a historian. Yes. Yes. Six, 16.1% <laughs> lead for the Conservatives. The most recent data point, and bearing in mind that the collapse of the UKIP vote into the Conservative vote has occurred after that point. So that yeah, is yeah. without the UKIP vote, which has since been added. Now, the Conservatives are on 43.8%, Labour are on 36.1%. They have cut that lead by nearly 10 points to 7.7%. It's probably worth pointing out that the, that Labour vote share is above what Tony Blair got in 2005 yep. and got the the very large majority by modern standards. Yep. Yep. If the UKIP vote had not collapsed from uh, what it was, uh, 11.1%, now down to 4.3%, then this election would be neck and neck. That is an incredibly fast movement in the polls. Though. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, you, you look at the graph and it is, it's, it's incredible. You know, you know, we've never seen anything like it. So, I mean, you look at, you look at the previous parliament and there's just nothing mm. of equivalent. I mean, just after the previous election is about the only thing roughly comparable. And that's and just because... Disappeared. And that's just their vote share anyway. because the previous polls were, were so bad anyway. And then, you know, this is a bit more of a nightmare. But, I mean, just basically, since Clegmania, we ain't seen nothing like it. Mm. And that turned out to be a damn squib in any case. Um, yeah, bad, bad comparison there. <laughs> but... They actually did go off. It did. It's just not very much. much. They, they won less seats than that. Yeah. Yeah. They lost three... Yeah, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. So yeah, so the 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 massive the massive shift at the polls is just sort mm. of un- basically unprecedented, and I think it it just goes to show how much the Corbyn message, uh, the the message rather of the Labour Party under Corbyn, has resonated with the public. Mm. This is a consistent theme in that politicians representing positions that are left in a way that is outside of what was considered normal five years ago, mm. have a late swing to them in elections. Yeah. It's what happened with Mellenchon. He he was mm. he was very far behind. Yeah. And then he he very near drew with the with uh, Sarkozy's party. Yeah. Um is in the French election, yeah, yeah, yes. Through a very, very late uh, swing in the polls. He 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 that 
spike in Alan poll ratings came from pretty much nowhere. Yeah. And, and I mean, I mean, and this is just the polling average. I mean, some, some of the polls are a little more, a little more reserved. Um, some of them are more. Some of the comrades, well, yeah, I say some of the comrades ones, I think, are still showing fairly substantially to the Tories, although still some cut. Of, some of them are more optimistic. But yeah, I mean, the last, the last there was two of them. Two Salvation polls have showed a single point lead from Conservatives, which is well within the margin of error. Mm, uh, you, I thought it was only one of those. You, of YouGov are showing, um, sort of three, four, five points. You know, fairly, fairly small leads. Um, Ipsos Mori, five. Panel base, uh, eight is a little more. But I mean, you know, there's a fair spread of, of polling because the, mm. the, the different pollsters have used different methods to weight their turnout after the kind of chaos yeah, yeah, of the last after, election. So after the last election, the pollsters got, yeah, um, um, got it a bit wrong. Yeah. Um, apart so from that the, one salvation poll, which yeah, yeah. they didn't release. But, um, uh, but the, the, the different polling companies have decided to change their methodology to try and correct for it in different ways. Yeah. So um, I can't remember what it was. I did read about it once. Uh, some of them changed their direct weighting, but some of them changed their predictions for the gap in turnout between different... Yeah, so essentially the difference is, is that slightly more pro-Labour pollsters like YouGov and Salvation have... Well, actually, Salvation altered their polling mid, mid-campaign, so... Like, there's a slightly different thing with YouGov, which is that they've massively increased their um their, their sample size. Yes. Like ten times what all the other posters are using. Yes, but but also what YouGov are doing in particular is um weighting their the turnout by um likelihood to vote, but also whether they vote people voted at the last election. Right. Because they're using that as a kind of predictor, whereas um, Servation, uh, sorry, not Servation. Servation are a bad example because they changed halfway through the campaign. So <laughs> really? I'm going to ignore them. Yeah, they were still tinkering with it. Infinite. Comrades, rather, and, and a couple of others, but Comrades are the good example. Comrades are waiting, basically waiting on the basis of demographic data. So they're saying, right, right. this many, this proportion of <coughs> young people vote, right, so we okay. shall weight them to this degree. Mm-hmm. Not actually asking people. So that's why they're producing these different leads because basically what this is saying is, Lots of young people are saying they're going to vote that wouldn't normally. You go by taking that on board. Ah, right. Comrades okay. aren't. Yes. That's so, essentially the difference. So, so comrades are, are saying that they're assuming that roughly the same portion of young people are going to vote as they normally do. As, well, not just as they normally do, but as did in 2015. As, as, yeah, as they did in 2015. Whereas YouGov are saying that... Because there's an increase in the number of young people who say they're going to vote this yes. time. Yes. Massively, yeah. which is really important. I think yeah. something and like there's been an increase in uh, young people registering to vote. Something well. like two million in the last. Well, in fact, that, that that particular statistic is about a week old. But I think about a week ago, they were saying two million since the start of the campaign. Right. Yes. Uh, young people. That is. Right. Okay. Which so... is which is big news if they all turn out. Hmm. If yes. they all turn out. I mean, it's good. It's good that they're on the registry, even if they don't. But I mean, ideally, we'd like them to yeah. turn out because yeah. people under the age of thirty-four swing for Labour. People over the age of thirty-four. Yes, but particularly this election as well, the 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 gap between what Labour's getting and what the Tories are getting in mm. in young people is bigger than it was before. Oh, massively! Yeah, the, the election was only uh, among only, only people under the age of forty. Uh, in fact, I think even if he went up to sort of like fifty, um, I think oh, Labour yeah. win in a landslide. I think it's only once you start to factor in retirees, yeah. essentially, um, and the fact that retirees are much more likely to vote, um, and uh, yeah, yeah. increasingly even as they get older, so. 75-year-olds are much more likely to vote than 65-year-olds, which is another thing mm. that they've changed since the last election, waiting um, for 75-year-olds. They've split the top age bracket up, whereas previously it was just one, 65-plus. Um, but yes, so 
this is probably getting a bit arcane for people who don't mm. follow yeah, like yeah. the 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 methods of polling. But so yeah, essentially what it is getting a bit nerdy. Cephology, yeah. uh, isn't it? Cephology. Yeah. I'm never sure how to pronounce that. Um, <laughs> I don't do Greek, um, but um, okay, now it's got nerdy. <laughs> yeah, oh yes. <laughs> but um, <laughs> in any case, um, essentially. Two million more plus young people will have registered to vote if they all do turn out and turn out in two million. Uh, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, and if they all turn out and turn out in, um, or it might have been two billion people and then like a percentage of them. Oh, okay. But anyway, big yeah, increase. In any case, that's yeah, huge. yeah, big increase in the number of people registering. A large proportion of them were uh, under the age of of thirty four, which is. Tradition, which is uh, you have calculated, although they calculated this before the campaign, so it might have changed, was the swing point between voting more like to vote Labour to more like to vote Labour. Right. 34 is the age. Large proportion of them have joined up, and if they vote Labour in the proportions that we would expect them to, in in the numbers that are theoretically possible, Labour could win this. Mm. Um, and in theory, win it, you know, fairly well. It's just, yeah. all of the, basically, so, Labour have a te- such a, Consistent tendency to outperform, uh, to underperform their polls by about three or four points in every election since 1992. The pollsters have kind of baked that in. So they are right. basically showing. So when that says conservative plus one, what they really mean is. A normal poll would have Labour ahead of that. Yeah, but they're, but they're, they're kind of baking yeah. that in. Um, which had, okay, it, it's happened and enough that, times to be reasonable, but. The, the, also, the, the margin of error, well, the theoretical margin of error is three points, plus or minus three. But yeah. actually, the true margin of error in UK polls, according to Nate Silver of 538, oh, right. is plus or minus four. So, and you, you've already got a four-point thing baked in. So, I mean, that could give you, in, in, in the best of all possible worlds, mm. an, a plus eight-point swing on top of this already basically zero lead that Salvation is showing. Mm. You know, so it's not impossible. So- Essentially, the deciding factor in this election is going to be young people who say that they support Labour and are going to turn out and vote for it, if they do that or not. So, this is where we're going to get slightly appreciated. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) if you're listening to this and you are thinking of voting Labour, turn out, because your vote can make all the difference, particularly if you are of the youthful persuasion, which is not improbable for the audience Mm. of certainly the first of these, given that... It's basically just us two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but hopefully some other people will listen to yes. it once I stick it up on the, the iTunes thing that the, I have to work out in a minute. Um, we're professionals, ladies and gents, professionals. But yes, if you're, if you're thinking of supporting Labour, please make sure you do turn out because it really could make all the difference in this election. And you've actually got a choice this time, which really for the last sort of 20 years, you haven't. Now... There's two parties with very different visions in the United Kingdom, and I think, certainly, I, I think we agree, one is very scary, and the other is pretty sensible. Hmm. So, pick the right way, ladies and gents. Yeah. Brothers and sisters, comrades, comrades, <laughs> choose the correct decision and vote for Labour. This was getting, getting a bit clever a few minutes ago, mm. now it's just... <laughs> Please vote for Labour. This was a party political <laughs> broadcast on yes. behalf of... No, uh, it's actually... We're not being paid to say this. No, we're just, no, just no, imploring no. you desperately. Please, don't... We've already had Brexit. The country doesn't need to be mucked up any more <laughs> than it already is about to be. Please, 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 please. If you're listening, if you're out there, consider voting Labour. And if you are considering it, please do turn out. Hmm.
And if you're considering voting Tory, then just stay at home, really. Um, just, uh, just don't worry. Have you seen the polls? Look, comrades are showing plus 12 points for Tories. I wouldn't bother. You waste, you're wasting your time. You might as well have a cup of tea. But if you're thinking of voting Labour, you better turn out. Or I will haunt you. And I'll make you a cup of tea. And David will make you a cup of tea. Right. Um, we should have a sign-off. Yes, we, what it is. we should, but this is the first episode and it's been a rambling, incoherent mess already and we've been going for an hour and 25 minutes, which I now have to edit down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I think... What, what shall I sign-off be? First. What shall I sign-off be? Should it include the name of the thing? Uh, oh, yes. You've been listening to Revolutionary Dispatches. You've been listening to moderate centre-left dispatches that seem radical in the context of the last 20 years. That also. <laughs> um, although once the election's over, trust me, we'll be talking about full communism, but at the moment we're in battle. Oh yeah. 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 Abolish private property. That's the, that's the, uh, yeah. the goal. That's, that's private property, not personal property. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you can keep your toothbrush. It's always the toothbrush. It is always the toothbrush. It is always the toothbrush <laughs> they go for. It's like, oh, you're good. Take my toothbrush away. It's like, well, that, I mean, A, is that really the thing you're most worried about? Because that says a lot about you as a person. And B, no, we're not. I mean, you just... Anyway, yes. You've been listening to Revolutionary Dispatches. <laughs> Thank yes, you. Yes, those last 30 seconds should be our whole sign-off. We should say that every time. Thank you, comrades. <laughs> for you, see, you were talking over, I've got to say it again. You've been listening to Revolutionary Dispatches. Thank you, comrades, for your time and attention. Viva la Revolution. Bad people with yeah. an intolerant left, mm. David. That's what we yeah, are. So much for the tolerant left. Yeah, so much for the tolerant left. That can be another post credit thing. Yeah. So much for the tolerant left.